Fantasy Animation is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. listeners me again one quick notification before we get going um this beautiful crisp microphone through which you can now hear my voice in in, in its full grandeur uh, was not used in the recording of the podcast because i pressed the wrong button uh, this can happen in podcasting occasionally it means i have sleepless nights but hopefully you can still enjoy the episode with a little bit of crackling um, so that's why my voice doesn't sound very good um, chris well he has his own excuses but do enjoy the show. Um, it's a good one this week um, and slightly different from our usual calibre, so um, hope you enjoy it. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. This week, at least, I am Alex Sargent. And I am the obligatory Georges Méliès reference, Chris Holiday. <laughs> and, and it's about to become clear why we're not quite certain about our identities yep. in this uh, brain-scrabbling episode. Um, today we're talking about a film um, that many people might have heard of, but perhaps a fewer have seen, um, By the Time It Gets Dark. Um, a film that I'm hoping we're going to unpack over the next hour, but with great depths and nuances. I sometimes think, Chris, our job on this podcast often is to make seemingly simple films seem quite complicated um but i think the opposite is true here i yeah. think we're going to try and bring a level of clarity or at least um interest in intrigue to a film that i think for some will be quite challenging but for others quite beguiling and, and a movie that um i'm at least interested in as a fantasy theorist in that it, it is a it is a, a nominally a, a film that is very interested in ideas of fantasy as a register as a mode of address as a way of tackling uh, the world, um, history, identity, trauma, um, but at the same time, I think fantasy fans might be forgiven for not seeing the fantasy straight away. So I'm looking forward to to finding the fantasy in this one. How about you? Well, similarly, I it was about half halfway into the film uh, that I suddenly it's sort of twigged for me how how this might fold into a discussion of, of animation. Um, I suppose I'm interested in deconstructing and sort of shifting ontologies, which a lot of animated films tend to do, lean on the methods of their construction for sort of comic effects. So I was sort of interested in the, the mixed media texture of, of the film, certainly at the start and then towards the end. Um, and yeah, about halfway through, there's a spectacular sort of reference to, to Georges Méliès, um, hence the gag at the start. But in many ways, this is an atypical film, but also kind of perfect to talk about this fancy and animation interchange. And we have the perfect guest, see what I did there, um, yes. to, to help us through this this film, which is um, Felicity G. Uh, Felicity is a senior lecturer at the University of Exeter, specialising in modernism and world cinema. Uh, in particular, her recent interests focused around surrealism, the avant-garde cinema, uh, Japanese cinema and affect. She is also the author of Magical Realism, World Cinema and the Avant-Garde, which came out in 2021, which examines the critical inception of magical realism in painting, photography and literature and its practical application in film, of which this movie, I believe, features um, as one of the number of case studies in the movie. So Felicity, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Alex and Chris. 
Well, well, we're happy that you're here, Felicity, because we, we're, we're still getting over this movie. I think it's, it's as I say, a movie that requires a, a certain amount of contemplative action after you've watched it. So let's do that together. Um, we'll start with this week's impossible question. Um, this might take the whole hour, but <laughs> it's the film, isn't it? To... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but let's 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 do it. It starts off um, magical realism, Felicity. Um, what is it, and how might it be related to ideas of fantasy? Well, that is the question, isn't it? So, um, first of all, there's the, the kind of popular idea of magical realism, which comes from Latin American literature, like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And that's kind of, you know, probably the standout text if you want to think about literary magical realism. And then the lesser known thing, I suppose, is um, it's an art movement from the 1920s in Germany that um, comes out of German romanticism and is a kind of pushback, um, trying to make sense of modernity. And I guess how I see it is that it's often confused with surrealism, particularly if, you know, you'll often see a film review and it says, this is a surreal film, this is a magic realist film. And probably the epitome of that is um, Pan's Labyrinth, which mm. is the magical realist film. Um, and why is that considered magical realism? Well, Pan's Labyrinth is that brilliant intersection of trauma, um, the focalization of trauma through a child's point of view, um, coupled with fantastical effects, um, things that are related to dream worlds and to thinking through reality in a fantastical way. And I suppose the film we're talking about today is very different, although it does have similarities to that. Um, so um, my own personal definition of magic realism is something that is um, a combination of the magic and the real, where not one is privileged over the other, so it's a kind of seamless join between our interior thought, our dreams, our desires, and the factual, actual world. Um, what I've done is, when I've been thinking through these ideas, is to connect them through art history. <clears throat> and then we end up in cinema with these two really interesting essays um, written by cultural critic Frederick Jameson in the 1980s and that's really where by the time it gets dark is a piece of um, cinematic magic realism in the vein of what he's saying which is a combination of geopolitic and fantasy as well as an effective film um, something that's very personal and subjective as well it's funny because I've I've encountered when you said Jameson and I was talking before we, we sort of started that I was trying to find a trying to find a quote and that's that's what I was trying to find and my encounter with magical reali realism was first through Alex I think kind of conversations in the spirit of, of um, the the conversations that we have anyway you know int being introduced to, to magical realism but it also came from that being a term that I was. Or, or a term that I was trying to find to describe, or maybe that wasn't the term, but it ended up being the term, to try and describe my area of interest, so computer animated films, which I felt were cut to a different um, pattern when it came to sort of the, the fantasy of, of Disney, for example, um, that there was a different kind of strange visual reality to something like Toy Story probably is, is a good example. Um, and it got me into thinking about fantasy, so low fantasy, which I don't know whether there is a synonym for magical realism, or met, but there probably is. Look at you both looking at me as if I've just said something We're horrendous. Both pulling, yeah, not sure, but carry um, on, go on. But but <laughs> I'd sort of encountered magical realism through a way of trying to think about the fantasy of something like Toy Story, which was wasn't like other kinds of animated fantasy, if there is such a thing. Um, but how magical realism also, it seemed to me at that at the point that I was looking, had very few cinematic examples. And even though Jameson had been writing you know, mid-80s or so on, on attempts to kind of conjoin it with the cinema, it was primarily, is this right, a kind of reserve or preserve of, of particular kinds of literature. Um, when actually 
in certainly in the way that I'd I'd thought about computer animated films, they seem to exist outside of a broad definition of fantasy and science fiction. And actually, magical realism seemed to, seemed to do the job of trying to understand this is both Toy Story is our world, but also not quite, and it has that that kind of nuance. So me and Alex have talked about different registers of fantasy, and it seems I'm sort of interested, but also equally still unclear about about both magical realism as a term and also the faces that you just both pulled when I said, maybe they're a type of low fantasy. Yeah. Um, what I would say is there is a vernacular magic realism in cinema mm. where you could say it's that kind of popularised, for example, The Shape of Water, when that came out, everyone was saying this is magical realism. And... I had quite an adverse reaction to that. <laughs> and I was like, well, no, it's it's melodrama. It's also um, the monster movie. It There were other things going on in that film, which I didn't think were sufficiently critical um, or sufficiently, what's the word I'm looking for? In magic realism, it's often quite subtle and understated. And The Shape of Water is quite easy to follow it's it's quite hollywood in its delivery yeah. which i would argue cinematic magic realism isn't so the films that jameson talks to are really mind-boggling and a lot of them couldn't be seen for a while because they weren't available on dvd and, and i think um the way i've i've wrestled with the term is that i, I remember um, encountering your work a while ago at felicity and i was i was quite grumpy about the term magical realism and i think Actually, I've discovered we share that grumpiness in that at, what, what it tends to be used to mean is basically fantasy movies that we can take seriously. And I'm using sort of air quotes, isn't it? They're, they're, they're films that have a kind of, you know, Academy Award art house inflection that are in, in my world fantasy movies that often get labelled with this magical realist brush. When what your work points out is that it's actually a completely different register. And to me, at least, one of the nice ways of separating it is that fantasy movies at their heart want you to sort of celebrate the, the irrational and the impossible it's about kind of you know i don't like the word but i'll use it just for simplicity's sake escaping into dreams and magic and and enjoying yourself and and, and letting go of that responsibility of interrogating reality and i do a lot of work on trying to sort of that's perfectly legitimate artistic practice and recreational practice and that doesn't need dismissing but that isn't really what magical realism is getting at it's using the sort of uh, lexicon vernacular rhetoric of fantasy dream imagination hallucination all those kind of words to actually really fundamentally interrogate the real and, and i think that's a really important distinction between the two modes that this kind of oh i mean pan's lab it's not a fantasy movie it's it's a it's a um it's a magical realist. Well, actually, what's great about Panzer is it is a fantasy movie. It does all the things I said in the former because of what it's saying politically. But that isn't what a film like um, By the Time It Gets Dark is doing. It seems very invested in, in, in trying to examine the real through a sort of lens of the fantastical and the magical. And I think that's, that's a really great thing um, that, that sort of these kinds of world cinema can do. I think what the problem has been with magic realism is that people have fixated on the magical, the flocks of yeah. butterflies, yeah. you know, the <laughs> rather than, you know, even in Marquez's novel, it's, it's the reality of the banana factory and what that means about labor. That is the real, but yeah, the same, you know, Angela Carter, Salman Rushdie, the same thing has happened with that, where there's been a fixation on the flying carpet. Mm. or you know the, the character that um becomes an android or something half the way through and yeah. you know if we think about virginia Woolf's orlando where the the central character is both male and female and you know that to me is is magic realism um, and I, I find these questions really interesting because rather than saying the real is made magical by miracles, which a lot of people think of, it's more the world is equally real and magical if we're thinking about our interior thoughts mm -hmm. as human mm -hmm. beings. And it's, it's that, it's the imagination that makes things... Um, 
magic wheel um, is, is how I kind of argue it. And the way in which affect we are affected by images as well so it it's it's not universal either so magic can be a shortcut like the flock of butterflies but it can also magic can be different for different people and i think it's really important to acknowledge that and that's why i love jameson's essays because people find them infuriating (laughs) but they're also very magic realist in the Mm -hmm. way that they're very contingent on how he felt on a certain day when he watched those films. Um, So what I love about By the Time It Gets Dark is that I can guarantee we've all had really specific experiences after watching it that are to do with our inner fantasies, um, but also with the specific facts in the film and and what happens between those two points. So I'm interested to in the answer to come, if you could uh, eliminate on this, but it, it, it certainly I read quite a lot of the reviews of the movie that came out at the time, and, and there seemed to be that sense that part of what the pleasure of the movie is is that it sort of part of the imaginative power of it is that it requires a certain imaginative investment from the spectator to kind of start to piece any of it together into some sort of coherence, uh, and we're going to try and do a bit of that today, so mm-hmm. we're going to have to do quite a lot of imagining, I think, um, to, to do that. And, and, and it'd be not, not, So I guess it, the question is, it'd be nice to hear what, what you imagine the movie to be, because uh, as a starter, and perhaps what we could do is that the film sort of is, is loosely structured into sort of two halves, and the first sort of 40 to 45 minutes plays out relatively straightforwardly and conventionally in terms of narrative. So perhaps you could just talk us through the sort of the film up until, shall I say, The Magic Mushroom, uh, and then we can sort of uh, illuminate on that and just give listeners a sense of of the movie they might expect if they haven't seen it um, up until now. Yeah. I think what requires so much, um, you know, in terms of an active spectator is we're not... There's very little or no exposition. So... The beginning of the film um, has a series of sequences that are shot with no seeming connection between them. Um, So we have a purification ceremony. We have um, a very brutal, what we we think is a very brutal scene of soldiers um, and bodies on the floor tied up with the soldiers shouting at them which after a few minutes we realize is a performance piece in a, in a gallery. Um, and we have a documentary filmmaker who is interviewing um, a former activist who was involved in the um, Tamasat University massacre of 1976. So violence and brutality are kind of connected, but also what's really important throughout the film actually is this role of the filmmaker and who is looking and what medium are you using to express your reality in a way and the film sort of plays out after this sort of coda which as you say there's that really startling moment where you think you're seeing the sort of massacre take place and you're seeing an artificial and, and the film there's various moments we'll come to hopefully later where that the film does that again that kind of trick of of showing us what looks to be one reality and, and then revealing a fabricated sort of veneer um, of that reality and something beneath it. And then, as you say, it plays out this kind of, yeah, in, I guess, the sort of the filmmaker is interviewing um, a, a sort of uh, a key uh, person involved in the student protests. They tell their story and we have a series of flashbacks and it seems a little bit ambiguous as to whether the flashbacks are the, the reconstruction as the filmmaker intends or the, the memory this person we're all on relatively solid ground in terms of you know it's it's a it's a it's a slow-paced art cinema work but the the narrative is relatively coherent and then we get this sort of moment where the 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 former student activist that the subject of this film goes for a walk in the woods and encounters um well why don't you take it from there (laughs) (laughs) it's wonderful because the film is kind of I'm I'm kind of obsessed with um, mushrooms, not sure. with taking not with taking them, but with <laughs> <laughs> with the mushroom as a commodity, and um, they they're really underlined in the film. So 
these two characters are shooting the film in a very rural location. So what perhaps we've come to identify as the location of an art film made in Thailand, right? Um, and then, so we know that the area is very famous for its mushrooms and the character goes for a walk through the woods and, you know, it's really, it's quite slow. And then she looks across the forest and sees um, a child dressed in a monkey suit. And, you know, <laughs> there's no reason for that child to be there. And so your question is, is she hallucinating from the mushrooms um, that she's eaten or is that child really there? And we're not given time to really know whether that matters or not, because then it cuts back to her. She walks a bit further. And then the next time she looks across, she sees herself on the other side of the forest. So we get this doubling. And again, it's it's just really ambiguous as to what those encounters with the other really mean, um, whether it is kind of something that recurs later, which is a, um, a digital glitch, but this is some kind of glitch in what she's seeing. Um, is it a fantasy? Is it a memory or is it a hallucination? Mm -hmm. But in intercut, and I'm sure Chris will want to say something about this, is a sequence from Melius um, Le Voyage dans la Lune, which is yeah. cut into this. Yeah, which no, also features it, some some hefty mushroom action. It does. Right, yeah. It really does. It, it does. Yeah, no, I, I've certainly done a similar thing in terms of dividing the film up pre and post Meliers, which is a strange sort of <laughs> distinction to make because up until I think up until that point, I was sort of struggling a struggling a little bit to think about the place of animation. Um, you know, having having a Buzz Lightyear style existential crisis about how is this going to how is this going to fit, but actually. Um, I, I sort of there there are some clues at the start first sequence and at the, at the end at the end of the film with regards to kind of the use of black and white photographs that immediately take you out of of the, the movement and the motion which is a nice parallel as well to, to bodies that are being told not to move and to lie face down um, and it reminded me and and go please go with me on this but it reminded me of Who Framed Roger Rabbit um, because there's a bit at the beginning I think it's at the beginning or, or no, it's not a big. It's, it's at some point in, the, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where the um, Who Framed Roger, Ro Roger Rabbit himself is looking through black and white photographs, and I know that Alan Cholodenko has written about how that the quick flicking between the black and white photographs is sort of indicative of animation as a process that he's sort of looking at these this evidence and it flicks through and it's you know it's very Chris Marker and it's it's all this sort of stuff. Um, but I quite liked that sort of shifting ontology that that evocation of marker linking broadly speaking to animation and movement and then the film settles for a bit and you have the immortal line at least an academic is better than a soldier and then you have which is you know definitely true present company you know included um and then i sort of followed the student rebellion narrative the putting up of the posters and then 45 minutes in i want my first note is uh, digital animation on the sparkling mushroom question mark that was my first that a really brief fleeting accent that I thought, okay, so n now we're now we're going, now we're cooking, um, and then the citation of Melies, and I just, yeah, th thematically it links because of the, the 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 mushroom, but there are bigger questions here about early trick cinema, the durability of early trick cinema, the durability and longevity of Melies in particular, and then also that particular film, which which is, you know, it's about, if the film is also about, and this is, you know, before, by the time it gets dark, if it's about journeys, memories, history, it makes sense to cite, to cite Melies. But whether, I, I did a little look at how many pop cultural references are being made to Melies, whether it's, oh, obviously Hugo's probably a great example, but even Queen's music video, Heaven for Everyone, there are references to Melies. And so I was sort of struck by that, that pivot in the film, that Melies reference. Um, and, and what that says about the relevance, yeah, durability of Melies for that to be a, a reference point that seems to to kind of never really go out of fashion, notwithstanding these bigger questions that Alex and I can, or bigger ideas that Alex and I can chat about around Melies himself as a very liminal figure. He is both our first animator and your first fantasist, Alex. <laughs> but I don't, yeah, Melies, lots to talk about, but I'm sort of fascinated by that, that interjection of... of footage of um, Trip to the Moon. 
Absolutely. I mean, I I can remember just almost coming out of my seat when I saw it um, at the cinema. Um, just like, oh, this. I had an inkling, as you say, like the twinkling mushrooms. There, there are really, really subtle things throughout the yeah. film, as well as the kind of big hitting kind of this is reality literally dis- disintegrating that we get at the end of the film. And I mean, Melius is so important for filmmakers, obviously. And just, I don't know, there's, he, he kind of stands in for this, this realm of cinema where technological magic tells us something about our current moment. Mm. Um, there's, I don't know, it's very difficult to articulate because I love him as a filmmaker so much. Yeah. Um, and it just, even though you could talk about it as surface because it's intercut like a collage, there's, it gave me a kind of depth back through history that I mm. think is mirrored in what the filmmaker in the film is trying to do as well to get back. And we're, we're constantly going backwards and forwards. And the whole sequence is really a bit like Alice in Wonderland as well. Um, the kind of eat me, drink me, size and scale, um, where our, our world kind of shrinks and expands around these, these iconic ideas. So I don't really have an answer as to, to why. And I, I should ask Anusha actually why she put it in there, that in mm. particular, um, because, you know, it obviously has a really nice parallel, as you say, as an object, the mushroom, but I'm sure there's something mm. else behind it too. To, to do a bit more imagining, and, you, and you've stolen my thunder for this, because I've got all my notes here. Magic mushroom, Alice in Wonderland, question mark. Um, because, <laughs> I, well, I just, I, it's not that, in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, we're in a wood, there's a little girl, and now we've got a magic mushroom. It's, it's not a huge leap of, of, of imaginative act, particularly how, sort of, you know, how indebted or how, in, um, how sort of embedded um, Alice in Wonderland is within sort of global pop culture. But I thought, I was thinking when The Mushroom came up and I was thinking about Alice in Wonderland and the line from Alice in Wonderland that, that sort of stuck in my brain was that, you know, the, the immortal one about The Mushroom is that one side will make you grow taller and one side will make you grow shorter. And there's this sort of, you know, paradoxical duality that The Mushroom is both a, a, an enabler and a shrinker of identity and reality. And Alice, you know, plays with that thing throughout the whole thing on on some um, you know episodes of the of the of the story, she's she's tall and vast and all this stuff. Another, she's meek and small and, and things like that. And to have that kind of inserted into my brain just at the moment that Melies um, uh, appears, it, it seemed to be quite almost a metatextual uh, comment about what the film is about to do. And we'll sort of talk about what the film then does. But it's it's almost like we have this interjection of of effects. We have the interjection of Melies and the film sort of asking us to think about whether this will make make us grow taller or or make us grow shorter are we about to lose the sense of 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 getting at history and getting at reality or by growing taller are we going to actually get um into the depths of it a bit more we're going to get you know over the treetops and see um things uh reveal themselves more and i i was playing with all those things as that moment happened I really love it because it would be easy. I mean, so so many Thai films play with ideas of reincarnation and and the spiritual, mm. and it it would have been so easy to have a, a forest sequence that did something different. But to kind of question reality or have an adjacent reality through those technological means, I thought was just super super interesting. Mm. Um, so. Talk us through what happens after that, because after that, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, then we get another kind of um, we have another sort of encounter with children that seems to blur different boundaries of identity. Things get a little bit persona or a little bit doppelgangery, where we have this sort of elongated moment where uh, is it the, is it the filmmaker or the or the um, or the subject of the film that's that's weeping in the bed? I can't even remember now. So you'll have to talk. What happens next? Well. To be honest, to be asked what happens next, I just <laughs> yeah. I'm known on the podcast for asking impossible questions. I think tell me the story of the film is the most impossible question I've asked. But... I, I think there are there are sequences, there are sections of the film that um, are deliberately confusing, where we don't know actually the same person comes back but is different, and we also have. Um, 
another major section of the film with a kind of teen idol singer. Um, and we see him make a music video and then we see him eat dinner with his girlfriend and then we see him in a car. And one of my favorite sequences is there's, um, cause I really do think this film is about the gig economy and about working class labor as well. And the ordinary Thai citizen. And we have this beautiful moment where you've got the pop idol in the car gazing out of the window and a bubble blower mm. walks past. And you just get these prismatically gorgeous shots of the bubbles. But also if you think about what the bubble blower is doing, it's this kind of um, improvised form of labor. They're trying to make money, getting people to buy the bubbles or to, to wash the cars or whatever. And I think what's really great in this film is the juxtaposition between the kind of pop side of things and the more serious um, conditions. So we also have a character that is seemingly reincarnated. A rest, um, she works in a restaurant in the mm. rural location. Then we see her as a cleaner and a waitress in the city, but also a Buddhist nun. <laughs> um, <laughs> in at the end so this idea that people can be interchangeable or reincarnated and mm. doubling is is something that's really magical but yeah. also it has a realism to it as well i think that the point being made is is one of depth but it's interesting the the sort of staging the reflexivity that 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 comes with the territory with regards to this magical realist uh, film that is actually really kind of deconstructive. And I mentioned at the start, a lot of animated cartoons like to play with the behind the scenes or the, 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 the pen on the, on the paper and pulling back, actually the kind of pulling back to, to reveal the mechanisms of, of kind of construction. And the film does this really um, kind of quite intensely at some moments and then more subtly in others. So there's the, the Melies reference that that is sort of a, a, a playful acknowledgement of stage magic or staged magic. Um, fast forward then to the to the end and the, the playing with the kind of glitch technology. But even before that, sequences that take place in what look like the post production studio, the kind of behind the scenes. So there's lots of moments where it it kind of repel the film t takes you in and then pulls you out again and then lets you get back into a certain point and then pulls you out again and it seems these bigger questions of dramatization and and uh, an immersion um are are set in play at the very very start with this false opening frame which again animation and, and uh, comedy films actually love to do and but there's there's something really interesting around the the, the film's reflexive acknowledgement of of production and construction and dramatization and they're all treated with the same level of I don't know. I, I don't know what the word is. The same level of that thing, but the same the same level of of um, sincerity, I guess. No, yeah. I absolutely agree, and I think it's completely non-hierarchical the, yeah. the use of different medium um, specificity in the film. And you're absolutely right. The self re self reflexive nature of revealing the device all the way mm. through. Um, yeah, I think Alex, you were going to say something. Well, well, I was just, I was just going to, um, because what we get after the sort of after the, the, with the, the mushroom sequence, we get, which is now going to be sort of, it's like rosebud, <laughs> isn't it? Um, uh, uh, we get this sort of introduction. You know, I was struck when you were talking earlier about um, uh, about magical realism being found not necessarily in the in the magic carpet, but in the in the the lengthy description of labour or the sort of the the, the authenticity of detail, but the weighting of of the objective qualities of a lived-in world, and and what and what that immediately made me think of in the movie, and I thought I must come back to that, is that we get this sort of very kind of um, deviating long sequence where we cut to a, what seems to be a sort of unknown worker at the time who's sort of working in is it a, a rice is it a rice field? It's a dry sort of dry tobacco. Tobacco yeah. is it right? Sorry, yeah. it's a tobacco field um, harvesting the dried tobacco, and we get a pretty lengthy sequence of of labour cutting down this tobacco. It lasts six seven minutes something like that um all you know no dialogue just sort of the, the action itself and the sort of uh, the camera has a sort of um close-up immediate quality that gets and gets you in the, the the work 
with the people doing it. And then after that, we get this sort of new character who we don't know who it is, but it's this worker on the tobacco field. And then, of course, we suddenly, as it, as the film plays out, we suddenly realise that actually, again, what we're watching is a is a is a char- is an actor playing a, a, a worker who's actually a very glamorous sort of. Uh, teen throb uh, actor who we see lunching with his friends and debating whether he's going to take this new movie because he might not earn enough money in it but the director seems keen so uh, he's not sure Uh, and we get this yeah the film kind of as Chris says keeps pushing us back in and out of these kind of the moments that seem at their most social realist suddenly it will pull the rug under us and go the image isn't to be trusted, uh, yeah. and we'll come to we'll come to how that plays out with effects in a minute. But I wondered if you had any thoughts on that sort of sequence of events. You're you're both absolutely right with how it pushes and pulls you. But the tobacco is really like the mushrooms, but in a different way. It's so important because you, again, yes, you you you're immersed in the product. Um, it's very tactile. Um, you can almost smell it and you're thinking about those workers. And then we get these transitions. I mean, there's a shot with the teen idol smoking, um, which is obviously, you know, the product of the tobacco. You also mm. see these lines of um, people queuing to get on the plane, which is is just after we've seen that. But the, the kind of effective register. So we get the silliness of the pop video that this man is making to, yeah, to get yeah, money. Yeah. So it's very kitsch. And then you get the, the tobacco scenes. And then the most harrowing moment is when we pull away yet again and um, an indie, well, a world cinema independent filmmaker is is watching back the footage. Mm. So we, we kind of pull back into the cinema and then she receives the news that this teen star, the lead actor in the film has just died in real life. Mm. So the juxtaposition of these screens and the tobacco and the kind of glamour and the tragedy is, is just seamlessly navigated without any overt exposition at all. And, And this is where the digital kind of comes back into the equation in that what happens is obviously we get this sort of really, you know, glamorous... Because, again, the film also plays with different sort of tonal visual palettes, doesn't it? There's there's moments where the, the image is very grainy and and seemingly lo-fi and all these sort of clunky words we have to describe. And then other times it seems very sort of atmospherically lit. And then at this moment, it's almost at its most, quote-unquote, Hollywood, that the, the, the camera mm-hmm. is sort of, you know, really kind of uh, crisp and... and, and you know that kind of sheen that we expect from sort of high-end production, and then we we see the color grading. So actually, we get we get someone photoshopping the image. We get someone um, changing the color, and 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 we don't have animation, but what we have is digital technology that's changed. You know, we've had an assault on narrative. We've had the things you're watching are sometimes fabricated, and now we have not only are the things fabricated, but the image itself is fabricated beyond authenticity, and and we get these people changing the image, changing the image and, and making it on a computer. Uh, then we get this uh, revelation that the star is dead and then they all kind of take a moment out of sort of a, a nominal sense of respect and then just sort of get on with tinkering with the, with the image on screen. Chris, did you, um, did you, did you, did you, did you start writing at that point on your notes? Um. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's the, um, I, I like the idea of the kind of assault, the assault on narrative and the assault on image and, and it's, it's reflexive, but it's also about yeah the act of, or the, the the value of the intermediary and the value of the production, like the production suite as this place where images pass pass through. And and you're right that the that glitching is a I mean glitching is a funny one because um, I mean yeah I'm I'm sort of interested in in glitching thanks to Wreck It Ralph probably that's my that's my starting point. But but I know you know with regards to anti illusionism and and modern art and the sort of art that is sort of sunk in things like so this is you know Noel Carroll verisimilitude imitation mimesis simulacra copies all the things that that we are we we come to know of of certain kind well certain ways of thinking about art and representation and then suddenly you have this glitch as agitation or this reductivist moment which strips down the image um to its basic ingredients in some senses um and the film suddenly kind of... It's funny because the film almost goes into recession. So the film 
sort of falls away in the same way that, and I think you mentioned this earlier, Felicity, you know, characters are just kind of interchangeable or there's, um, the, the, you mentioned violence and brutality and there's something quite violent, you know, the, the violence being waged on the image at that particular moment um, the image is, un as I said, it unstable. It's imperfect. It's, it's, and of course, glitches are, are, are political. You know, the 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 formal and chaotic political moment where the technological facade falls away. It's a, it's an attack on the on the the industry and the machine. So yeah, it, it happens towards the end. And I admittedly did think that my VLC player was playing up on me, as one <laughs> does, but. Um, I, a lot of art, I think there's, um, I want to say a Kanye West music video that plays with glitch, glitching. I can't remember the, the name of it. And there's um, a, a kind of a couple of other deliberately glitching, glitching things, of of course, and the Wreck-It Ralph films are, are exactly those. And they play with, with, with gender in relation to, to kind of glitching. But there's certainly something interesting about the ontological parameters of this film. Uh, and Melies is key to that, I think. I absolutely agree. And I really love that you brought Chris Marker up earlier because in my book, I talk about the glitch and because I, I always try to write down my first impressions before they disappear when I've seen something and because it's very pink and it reminded me of the kind of reddish, pinkish, um, what Chris Marker calls the zone in Sans Soleil, obviously oh, referring yeah. to Tarkovsky. And to me, they kind of all interlink in this, this mode of ontological reckoning almost um, that we have from Melies to Chris Marker and, and beyond. I really loved that when you mentioned it. I was like, yes, absolutely. There's, <laughs> there's something that resonates through this. But the glitch is something that, that for me is a magic realist device. I could read it that way because it will have a shock and it will make us reevaluate what we've seen or it will make us do something um, very active, hopefully. And it's a kind of tabula rasa as well, where everything is just that we've seen is reduced to this glitch. And then we fade away, well, not fade away, but it becomes this oversaturated, unnatural green and blue um, color palette that gives us back the landscape. So I have a I have a question then on that on that front. Um, perhaps looping back the beginning to the end. So just before the digital, because you have the the scene in this sort of production sweet i guess as you say where where there is a highly inconsequential treatment of death uh yeah he's died we should probably crack on with this deadline um which i kind of loved uh then you have a sort of abrupt cut to a nightclub which i sort of found absolutely fascinating and the sort of real moment of saturated color um neon light displays that kind of counterpoints the opening so you have all this intense movement in the nightclub that loops back to the stillness of bodies lying on the floor and we've gone from in an hour and a half from black and white photographs to to neon nightclubs then you have the digital image flickering and the, and the glitch and the sort of gestures to, to glitch art so i wondered then if if within that reflexivity there is a sense in which these are just images that that this is just an image for us and this is this is an image that's being passed through and we're watching it develop from and change from one colour to another. Is there a, a level of inconsequentiality to this being just images? That what we're seeing is just staging. It's just staging, it's just images. Does that come into conflict or do you read it as potentially coming into conflict with, with the sort of seriousness of the real historical event that this film is purportedly engaging with? Because it, its treatment of that event always seems one once removed it's always being staged upon staged and I, so i just wondered whether whether these devices that the film uses are or do you feel like they're in any way um making the seriousness or diluting the, the seriousness of, of the of the event that it's sort of um you know dramatizing i actually have a quote from the director um which i thought was really helpful um she says I can read here. I myself was born in 1976, so I kind of feel a connection with the students, even though I've never been involved directly. Over time, I've wondered if I really have a connection with the event, or if I don't, right. or if I do, but I have not realized it yet. 
So I think her own relationship with what was a very seismic event um, is ambiguous. And yeah. like for any of us with, with events in the past and our relationship to our own place of birth um, and the cultural events that have taken place there and across the world. So that quote really kind of answered your question for yeah. me in that <laughs> it is serious, but it's also how do we in the contemporary moment process things that have happened in the past that don't remain static. They take on a life of their own, whether they become myth or whether they become fantasized or overblown or whether they become forgotten, in fact. So I think part of it, there is a sincerity in thinking about how we capture and memorialize things as well. Yeah. And I guess it occurs to me that perhaps one of the things, one of the many things, in addition to what we've already said that the film is, is also saying is that is that a sort of a language of metaphor um, is is in a way a sort of more honest way of thinking about memory and the past than a, than a sort of literal representation because met, because in the many ways our memories are metaphors for our present right it's think things matter to us because they figuratively allude to something that matters now because the past is always only ever an expression of the present so it's it's if it's as if the film sort of at the point of the mushroom back to that again <laughs> um decides at that point to sort of let go of of the literal in favor of this sort of more conceptual metaphoric language as a way of expressing this kind of idea that an event becomes another event becomes another event through various forms of sort of artistic and individual creative mediation and then by the end of it you have a much more knotted relationship to what it once was i don't know that it, it, i hadn't thought about that whilst writing it but of course fantasy is so often talked about in its capacity to metaphor and i again get often get very grumpy about it because it's as if, it's as if fantasy has to be a metaphor for something for it to be anything but but in this case i think i think the film almost challenges us to see that see its images as metaphors because otherwise they sort of are as chris says without substance and consequence and it's and it's the desire to metaphor you know the, that kind of interpretive art cinema. This must mean something. Let's piece it all together that we're currently doing right now. It, it's part of that kind of desire to give these images some meaning back when they're often almost, um, you know, deliberately constructed in such a way as to evade easy meaning. So yeah, the role of metaphor being a really important part of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Jameson has a lot to say about allegory and metaphor in in magic realism as well. And I think. You know, this idea of, it's another Jamesonian um, kind of concept, but he, he talks a lot about the eternal present and film's capacity to spin an eternal present that is kind of packed with the past and sort of encapsulating the future all at once. Um, mm. He talks about this all at once-ness that you get with magic realism. And I don't know, I think there's a sense that you could say, well, doesn't any film do that? And that's what I always struggle with. Like what is specifically magic realist about something? And for me, it's about this intersection of the avant-garde and self-reflexivity, um, whatever that medium is, with a political event or something that needs to be unpacked with, and fantasy here slash magic is, anything from a literal um, geological or um, astrological phenomenon like an eclipse to a hallucination from a magic mushroom. So I, I suppose the, 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 when you just talked about cinema's capacity to spin an eternal present, and I was thinking about the film's use of, of real time and its connections to sort of slow cinema in that sense, and you get a lot of sequences. You mentioned, Alex, the, the tobacco sequence, but um, characters cleaning, cooking, sweeping, um, frying an egg, you know, lots and lots of things that happen and unfold in, in real time, which I think adds to that, that eternal present. Um, I guess just going back to the 
to the idea of, of processing and there's something quite nice in the mirroring between an image that comes to fruition in the final shot of the film um, an image that is processed and, and ready for consumption and and the film's broader narrative of, of trauma and 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 that sense but also that sense of dislocation and the quote that you read out with regards to that fluctuating contact or connection with the event this pretty seismic event as you said but that we're always sort of distanced and and you're right the having you know recently recently all of us experiencing the the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and I remember studying from the news footage of that at university for one of my television modules and the the hypermedia aesthetic of everything being boxes on screens and history is now reducible to these boxes in the corner of screens and, and rolling credits and and things at the bottom of, of television screens that tell us when news is breaking or, or whatever it might be this the, the rolling ongoing hypermediaization of uh, or hypermediatization of, of history and it seems there's something of that whilst in this film but whilst also the film itself being as you say realist in in all kinds of ways um that the only way to deal with this event is to is to kind of layer it up and there's so much layering and, and, and pulling back and and it's it's a lot more it's a lot more complex but I, I totally get the that the film's formal plays with its own images and process of image making is entirely from Melies to marker is entirely conducive to to a, a, a filmmaker or um, a audience as well who may have only heard about this event only heard about this event anyway through through second or third you know conversations you know it's not experienced it directly but having it staggered and, and mediated for you so it seems like the the reference again we're back to Melies but that that's there's there's a lot to be said around a role of the relationship between illusion and, and trauma I think in that sense yeah, I agree. I think that's really interesting to think about illusion and trauma in those ways. And that, mm. for me, is where affect comes in um, a lot, to think about the slipperiness of our own experience. Yeah. Um, and, and fantasy plays such a big hand in that, um, seriously. And so the, the, the affective register that's, you know, obviously affects being not nameable emotions, but those things that escape description or are slightly between or slightly weird that we can't quite put our finger on. I think yeah. there's a lot of that going on in every single magic realist film. Um, but I think what, what, what differentiates them from other films is the explicit way in which they allow the ineffable and the effective to take center stage, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I think I think that's probably a, a time to sort of climb out of the various sort of strands and layers of fiction and try to sort of um, piece together some conclusionary remarks. I don't know if I have any more points on my notes. I particularly wanted to to flag up. Uh, I have I have written insects question marks. There's a lot of insect action going on, and one of the things that sort of alerted to me right at the beginning that this might this film might have sort of um, hidden depths at the corners of the frame or or in the in the sort of in in the lurking behind the scenes was was this sort of oddly oppressive insect soundscape in the first sort of 10 15 minutes uh, and there's a lot of insects that keep coming back i've got nothing to say about it other than that i noticed it um, i don't know if you felicity have anything insightful to say about the role of insects in this movie but there's certainly a sort of environmental geopolitical thing going on almost malachian sort of whilst this is all going on insects are getting on with stuff kind of um, mentality that's super interesting. I, I mean, this is another thing about the transferability of of place, I suppose, and how it registers for different audiences. Sure. Because to me, it's instantly recognisable because I lived in Japan for a long time. And those insect sounds are almost deafening in summer. There's no getting right. away from them. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, oh, you know, I had a very strong impression of of place. But obviously there's a choice made not to dampen that sound in the film and, and to make it yeah well i think well i think that's why the nightclub scene at the end feels so out of as if it's from just a different movie just a different um and i had to sort of go back and watch the transition i think because the cut is quite i think it cuts from the from the um the sort of buddhist monks chanting to the nightclub so it is quite quite a it, it's it's a match on action in the loosest sense of the word um but there is there is a nice 
sort of transition between the the, the two um, sequences that feel both a, a move across time as much as as space but i was sort of interested in yeah the the opening sequences where there's not much dialogue as you say this sort of rampant noise of of nature and and how that might link up to to um sort of pillow shots i guess in the sense of ozu but uh, and and certainly ghibli films studio ghibli films that that rely a lot on these 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 sorts of pillow shots that are placed to just contemplate nature for a moment um and and that so that sort of reminded me that that Ozu influence or that that way of of thinking about the film through the lens of of slow cinema, the sort of Tom Moore, the dead time things that happen in in um, in real time, and yeah, how sound is definitely definitely part of that. But as I said, I think that that that's what really made the the it feel like two two films stuck together with a with the mel- with the glue of Georges Méliès, as it were. that's great and I think I mean that's exactly what this film does we'll all find our different glue through it yeah I think and it's just so so rich um and the slowness allows us obviously contemplative time but there are really abrupt kind of violent cuts and Mm. yeah I think what's interesting is it's very for me has this kind of jarring effect of collage where the bits put together aren't they're designed to make us kind of step back a bit um before maybe lulling us into the more beautiful rural shots and the wider angle shots that we get of the landscape for example yeah i think that's a a terrific note to sort of to end unless do you have any final things we didn't cover i've just noticed it noted that we that we managed to do all that and we haven't mentioned there's about a six minute monologue where one of the characters reveals they have telekinetic powers but we'll just yeah. sort of leave yeah. that as a as a as, as a tidbit for, for audiences who want to um access the movie uh Felicity, any final thoughts on um by the time it gets dark just ending with telekinesis i think <laughs> it, it i knew you were gonna out. i knew you were gonna say that i thought we were in tune <laughs> love it um because you know if you think about the the final sequence in tarkovsky's mirror has mm. telekinesis and not miller am i thinking of the right film now um no i'm thinking of stalker okay yes there's yes, le- yes. levitation in mirror and telekinesis in stalker but this idea this is this is what encapsulates magic realism i suppose where you have the social realist context with the believability of the weird and affective stuff that happens to us in the everyday and they are equally real and i i, I would probably leave it at that i mean <laughs> magic realism is is a difficult and slippery term um, I had a great time working with it on my book. Um, you can read more about the film there. It's very difficult to bring the m- millions of strands together from 1925 and art history through to the present moment and how magic realism has shifted and, and what it means. So um, for anyone that's listening, I'd love them to just delve into the term a bit more and add to the definition as we go forward terrific call and the, the book magical realism world cinema and the avant-garde is, is available uh, online and, and ready to purchase uh, felicity if people wanted to find your work elsewhere do you have any social media platforms or blogs or anything like that people could follow you um, um, find more i am fee and shoegaze on twitter that's fi for fee and shoegaze for shoegaze um terrific. i love shoegaze yeah okay <laughs> terrific terrific um Felicity, thank you so much for um, for coming on the podcast and helping us. I mean, I'm sure listeners, uh, if hmm. listeners are, are, are ending that feeling like they've just about got about 10% of the movie, um, but not anymore, I think we've done our job. I think that will sort of be a nice encapsulation of, of the experience of watching it for the first time. And for any of the people who've um, who've, who've seen it a few times and, and had another chance to go at it, I hope we, we plucked out a few different strands. It's, it's that kind of movie, folks. You sort of, it's a... It's a it's a technicolor patchwork of a thing, and you and it's and, it, and I'm looking forward to revisiting it soon, but not just yet. I'll, um, I'll allow um, one one reality to die and another one to sort of emerge in its place. Um, but thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. 
You can find us, of course, at fantasy-animation.org. Access our archive of podcasts as well as um, weekly blogs. Um, you can find out uh, more about Melies in our episode on Hugo, for example, um, uh, which you can access um, via all podcasting subscription uh, services. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, and you can email us at the same thing at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on the movie. Otherwise, that has been us for another episode, and we'll see you somewhere in another reality next time. Bye. Oh, my gosh.